Episode 21, What All Has Changed in the Experience of Believers from the First Century Until Now. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. I'm very excited to get started today. This is going to be a great topic. It is one that is very difficult to get Christians to consider. And uh, this brings me back to something I mentioned in the last episode, this idea of abandoned trails. This will definitely be a theme from here forward. It's simply the idea that we have all manner of things to think about as Christians. We have a whole Bible with, what, 31,000 plus verses in it. Uh, things to be thought about, and yet we tend to abandon a lot of these trails without ever um, exploring them fully to find out uh, all the information that's there, what it means, how the pieces of the puzzle must fit together, and so forth. And there's maybe no better example than what we're going to talk about today. Uh, The question again is, what all has changed in the experience of believers from the first century until now? So in other words, uh, suppose you were Joe... Uh, Christian living in the first century uh, during Bible times, during the the, the New Testament time, uh, and suppose that you had a certain set of experiences that were fairly common with other Christians at your time. Suppose you all got together and wrote down what all your experiences were. Well, how would ours compare to yours? Uh, since then, in the last 2,000 years, roughly, Uh, how many things have changed. And um, this is something that I have noted for several years is extremely hard to get Christians to stop and consider. And of course, if we come up with anything that's changed, then there is looming right afterward the question, why? (laughs) Why did it change? And uh, the question why is not a good question in the eyes of the cognitive miser because it opens up all manner of of things that we'd rather just not have to think about. And, of course, uh, another really bad feature of a lot of the modern church culture is this. Someone will say, oh, your questions are stirring up trouble, and it's causing people to, quote, lose their faith, end quote, or to, uh, quote, struggle with their faith, uh, end quote, something like that. Uh, And I think this is a lie. It causes people to have to think through their faith, and to make good sense of it, which is something we should be doing as a matter of faith anyway. But a lot of the churches have this culture in which thinking is something they don't want the people to do. The people become more manageable that way if they're not thinking. 
and if they just uh, sort of blindly follow along with whatever they're told. And yet that's not what God says. He says, come, let us reason together. So uh, I think the churches have this sort of counter culture, counter to what God had in mind in uh, some ways, and certainly not in every way. This is not me saying, oh, everything about every church is all terrible all the time. No, that's not what I'm saying. And mature people can understand that and uh, hear me out without creating a straw man argument that they can knock down, you know, meaning something I didn't say. They can pretend I said it and knock it down and show what a great um, debater they are. Uh, that's a straw man argument. Uh, so what we're going to talk about today is a list of things that are should not be very controversial. Some of them are, but most of these are not. These are things that you, with your Bible, in just a few minutes' time could look and say, oh yeah, okay, I see that, Jack. I see that that's not happening today as it was in the first century. So we're going to go through this because it's quite a volume of things. And again, I don't know how long this uh, conversation will last. I'm guessing it goes to two parts like so many of these do. And so uh, with that, I think we're going to just jump in here. I have a list of um, a list of points. I have 21 or 22 uh, things on a list, things that I'm going to argue have changed. And you can see if you agree or not. Also, uh, there's certainly more that could be put on this list. Uh, the more controversial things I have left off because they require more uh, groundwork to demonstrate them to be true, and they rely on other um, other points of decision to be made as, well, what did this mean? And, well, if it means that, then no, it hasn't changed. But if it means this other thing, well, yes, that has changed. And so there's a lot of that kind of thing. But today I'm just going to go with the basic things that we probably can agree on, uh, if not completely, uh, to a high level of completion. So uh, I'll leave that to you to judge. And if I have left something out, if uh, you've noticed something that I haven't noticed as far as what has changed, then um, I do hope you'll write me on the contact page at rethinkingthebible.com slash contact and let me know what I have missed. I'll be glad to add that in in a later episode. So let me remind you about the show notes. Uh, for each show, I do put down uh, hyperlinks to things we may have mentioned. I say we may have mentioned. That would be me, mostly. Although we haven't had an episode with Kay and James in a while, we should probably do that soon. Uh, however, I also put down the uh, texts used in the episode so that you can see them at your convenience. Sometimes I link to lengthier passages over at BibleGateway.com or... Um, even the blueletterbible.com. Uh, however, uh, today I have listed in the show notes the also the points I'll be making just in brief fashion, along with supporting scriptures where there are obvious scriptures to look at. So with, um, with that, let's just jump right in. I'm going to submit uh, number one, that uh, Jesus was walking around in Judea in the first century and he is not walking around in Judea now. And as if we needed evidence for this, I can cite Acts 1 verse 9. Uh, this is when Jesus is taken up to heaven. Let's see, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then there are actually uh, several pretty famous um, passages in the New Testament about Jesus having 
taken a seat at that time in heaven uh, on the throne of God. And uh, for instance, Hebrews 1.8, now the point in which we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So this is where the Christians thought he was. This is very well documented throughout the Old Testament. Several passages mention this. And so, um, obviously, Jesus is no longer here walking among us like he was among the younger ones in that generation. Uh, number two, oh, and let me say this as we go, these things will have implications. They will have um, consequences of these changes. And each one, like I said, can be a big can of worms. Well, we're not going to get into all of the cans of worms today as far as uh, delving deep into the details and what are the consequences of these things. So uh, hopefully you don't find any of them too troubling before we can get back to them and go into them later. Okay, number two. Uh, no one who ever knew or saw Jesus is walking around anywhere today. So you need to think about that because a lot of what's going on in the New Testament is about eyewitnesses telling other people. And so we don't have those eyewitnesses anymore who are still living today. Yes, you have the words of some of them written down and delivered to our generation in Scripture. And that's very great. I'm glad we have that. But there is a difference here that we need to note, and that is you don't have the people. You can't go ask them questions and get their answers. You can't have them look at what you're doing and saying and teaching and believing and say, you know, uh, this part over here, I think you've got that twisted. So uh, that's a big deal. And we'll uh, certainly discuss in coming episodes more and more about that and what that means. Uh, number three, no one to whom the Great Commission was given is still on earth. Now, this one you'll have to understand what I mean when I say to whom it was given. Uh, let me just read the passage. Matthew 28, starting at verse 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, okay, so you, you know by my emphasis that he's only saying this to the apostles to his 11 disciples. Uh, why not 12? Because Judas is already dead at this point. And so he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we have him giving them the thing that is famously called the Great Commission. But we don't see it uh, given by them to anybody else. Never is there a passage that we find where they say, and that thing Jesus said to us applies to all believers for all time and all places and circumstances. Now, uh, this obviously is controversial because pretty much most every church I know of will say, well, yeah, uh, it's understood that it applies to everybody. And we should talk about this at length uh, <laughs> because it's pretty important. Let me just say for right now, 
I don't believe it was given to everybody. I do believe that the apostles appointed some evangelists whose job it was to go out and preach. Uh, and yet I believe a lot of the believers who were not so appointed did uh, tell other people anyway. But I don't see any place it was mandatory for them. And I do see some wisdom in that because I have certainly met Christians, and you probably have too, who are not equipped to go teaching other people about Jesus. Uh, some of them are just not good with language. Some of them aren't good with reasoning. They're not good with communicating with others. And actually, they set quite a poor example and would do quite a poor job of it. And I don't think Jesus wants that job done poorly. And so isn't it interesting if, oh, well, actually, it's not commanded of everyone to do it. And so those who are good at it could go do it voluntarily. Those who aren't good at it uh, could either learn to get good at it and go do it voluntarily or not be doing it, right? So uh, I know this one's controversial, uh, except in the most particular way of what I said, no one to whom the Great Commission was given is still on earth. So in other words, I could have said the apostles aren't still here. And yes, that's controversial too, uh, because some people want to believe in an apostolic succession by which uh, apostles having uh, left planet Earth are replaced by other people. And we'll talk about that a bit as we go. In fact, it's the very next number, number four. There are no apostles today. Well, uh, obviously, some churches believe there are. Uh, Roman Catholic Church, for example, they don't call them apostles. Normally, they call them bishops, uh, but they believe this ongoing succession. In fact, they, they try to track uh, the Pope all the way back to Peter, which I think is dubious, and a lot of people think that's dubious. Uh, so, uh, yes, this one is controversial, yet a lot of Christians will readily agree with me that no, there are no apostles today. If there are, of course, I'm going to ask you, well, or if you say there are, I'm going to ask you, well, where is it written uh, how new apostles are to be selected? Because in the Bible, they're all appointed by Jesus himself. He's no longer here to appoint people. So how's that happening? And somebody might say, well, in the case of Paul, Jesus had already left and yet uh, appeared to him uh, in a voice from heaven that way. And so I will ask, okay, is that how it's happening today? Are voices from heaven coming down and appointing apostles today? And of course, uh, there is no prescription for this in the scriptures. There's no prophecy that this would happen. There's no example of it happening uh, Paul was a special apostle. He was not uh, chosen to replace one of the apostles in Jerusalem. So I would think your evidence is really weak for that. And then, of course, we could get into the argument, and I'll leave it at this. We could get into the argument that, well, who can you show today who claims to be an apostle, but who has the signs of an apostle, who can do signs, miracles, and wonders, who can lay their hands on people and give them the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit and things like that, uh, I don't know of any such person today, and if such person exists, I would love to know about that. So uh, going on, number five, apostles are no longer acting as judges in Judea. All right, this one's going to stir it up a little bit. Uh, Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus said to them, and this is to his apostles, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here he is predicting to them, uh, making a prophetic utterance about how they would have a job acting as judges over Israel. Well, this is not new language. We have lots of talk in the Old Testament about judges. And you'll know that uh, when the law of Moses was set up, uh, judges were appointed by God to oversee Israel. They were to administer justice and so forth. And um, this was God's plan. And so isn't this interesting that here comes Jesus with the new covenant and such, and yet look, here we have judges over Israel. Uh, to a lot of people right there, that's just counterintuitive. It makes no sense. And uh, some have followed this line into thinking, oh, well, this must be something that happens way later in eschatology. This happens like maybe at the end of the story. We've talked a bit about those who believe that at the end of the story, uh, heaven comes down to earth and stays here. And so God and all the angels and all that live with uh, people on earth. And we've talked about some of the difficulties with that. That's not my model. I think that heaven stays in heaven and that we go there and that uh, the revelation has been misunderstood in that regard. Uh, however, uh, look at this language a little bit more closely. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, and a lot of people are going to think, Oh, yeah, new heavens, new earth, right? Okay, well, when do you think that new heavens and new earth happens? A lot of people will tell you it hasn't happened yet. But here is Jesus using different terminology, new world, he says, uh, well, when is this new world supposed to happen? Well, he tells us so. He says, truly, I say to you, in the new world, here it goes, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So when does the new world come? Uh, when he's enthroned. Well, when was he enthroned? As luck would have it, we just read that in the Great Commission passage. Let me go back to Matthew 28. Uh... Oh, let's see, uh, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He was never going to get more authority than he had at that moment. That was it. And then, you know, we went on to look in Hebrews 1.8, for example, that they're, they're saying we're talking about having a high priest. They're talking about Jesus. Uh, quote, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus was already, at the time Hebrews 1.8 was written, he was already uh, fully promoted to that position, and there is no position higher. So when Jesus comes back and says that the apostles in the new world would be uh, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He gives us a timestamp on this, and he says this will be, quote, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So my question to you, in Acts chapter 2, was Jesus not already sitting on his glorious throne? Well, yes, he was. And so this one really rocks the world because a lot of people like to kick this can down the road and say, oh, no, that's yet future. But no, it wasn't. In fact, I'll give you an example. And uh, this is a bit lengthy, but hey, why not? <laughs> Acts 4, 
uh, at the end of Acts 4. I want you to see, uh, think through, I'm going to read Acts 4.32 through 5.11. And I want you to see, to think, to think through this, as the apostles already seated as judges over Israel. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one's, talk about things that have changed since then. Oh my. Uh, and this is not on our list of things that have changed. But anyway, they're of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Indeed, that has changed. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice where they gave it? To the apostles. Why? Because the apostles were judges over the tribes of Israel. Uh, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these things, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Well, of course. Talk about judges, right? Uh, here Peter is, uh, I mean, the apostles didn't strike this man down. God did it or, you know, had an angel do it. However, uh, it's done at the decree of Peter. So this is such a picture of Peter acting as a judge over the tribes of Israel. Uh, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard these things. Well, there's another thing that's changed. Uh, where is there great fear in the churches today about this kind of sin and fraud? I don't uh, see that happening regularly. And yet here, and this is, of course, under the uh, judges, that Peter was not the only apostle here. He's just the one who's mentioned here. But... Um, they give this judgment that you people are lying and God just killed them. And there's a great fear. We don't have this going on today. 
perhaps you have not noticed. <laughs> but no, this is not happening today. And we could talk a ton more about the role of apostles. In fact, we will do that, uh, I think, probably within the next two or three episodes after this one. Uh, number six, apostles are no longer laying hands on believers so as to bestow them with miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, listen to Acts 8 for a brief um, example of what I'm talking about. This is Acts 8, verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And uh, we could go on uh, further about this episode. It's quite a fascinating one. And yet uh, what, we, what you'd see in the passage is that they were able then to do miraculous things, superhuman things that they could not do before. And so uh, I contend that there are no longer apostles here doing that, giving these kinds of gifts to people today. And if you say, well, yes, they are, I'm going to ask you, okay, where are they? Where can I find them? I need an address uh, to know where to go so I can witness this, with, witness this for myself. Uh, number seven, apostles are no longer appointing and empowering deacons or evangelists. All right, so let's think through this one a little bit. Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Uh, there's a situation where all these Christians living together in Jerusalem, uh, they were having some contention between them because they were um, having their food in common, and some people were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so uh, a bit of a ruckus arose over that, and the apostles said, okay, let's deal with this. They said, we're busy with our, um, our mission, with our duties, so we ought not to be waiting tables. Let's appoint some other men. They let the people all put forth the men that they thought were well qualified for this. And uh, the, the crowd said, yeah, this is a good idea. So I'm going to pick it up here in Acts uh, 6, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here you see the apostles who are appointing these guys. And when they laid their hands on them, I believe that they gave them further gifts that they did not have before. In fact, you can follow... Through all of this, uh, for instance, Stephen uh, had some, was doing signs and wonders, miracles, and then uh, Philip did the same. And so these men definitely had gifts given by the apostles. Uh, even uh, the evangelist, uh, oh, by the way, uh, when Stephen is killed, he is evangelizing. Uh, we see Philip later evangelizing. And uh, so... The question, well, were these men evangelists? Well, that's a fine question. I would say probably they are. But we don't have many people who are named evangelists in the New Testament, even though we know that the office, and I know some of you don't like the word office, 
so the role of evangelist, the part of evangelist, uh, definitely existed because we have it in some lists. Uh, God gave, first of all, uh, apostles and then evangelists, it says, and so forth. So uh, here's an example of, of Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. For this very reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So, and I'm going to get into this just for a moment here. This verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is not a general statement for all Christians everywhere for all time in the indwelling of the spirit. This is Paul talking as, as an apostle who had been given uh, special gifts not given to everyone. And so when he says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control, he's not talking about the indwelling that everybody got. He's talking about a special powers by which apostles could do signs, miracles, and wonders that others could not do. And so Paul gives some manner of gifts onto Timothy. And so you don't have that anymore. Why? Well, because there are no apostles here to do that. Number eight, apostles are no longer writing epistles. That is letters, letters to the congregations. Uh, your New Testament has a bunch of those in there. Uh, but when was the last one that was written? It's been a long time. It's been close to 2,000 years since there was an apostle uh, writing an epistle. Number nine, and I have no evidence for this except for uh, you know, proving the negative, right? That, okay, well, go show me one. Show me a letter written by an apostle. Uh, since then, uh, you won't find it in your Bible. So if it's not there, where is it? Okay, number nine. Uh, nor are there apostles disciplining the congregations who get out of line. And I'll just bring to mind uh, examples. For instance, Paul writes to Galatians, a pretty heavy-handed letter about their bad actions, their bad beliefs and screwed up doctrines and things that were going on. Same with the Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians being the letter I have in mind. Well, this is not happening anymore. A congregation can get out of line. They can have all manner of bad actors in play. And they're not going to get a letter from an apostle today. So you think about that. What are the consequences of that? What are the implications of that? Number 10, Christians cannot ask the apostles questions, whether in person or by letter. If you look at 1 Corinthians, for example, you will find that Paul is replying to a letter they wrote previously. So he's giving an answer, and this should be taken into account when you're trying to interpret 1 Corinthians, because a lot of times he's talking about things they mentioned to him, but we don't have their letter. So we don't know how the questions were put to him. And if we did, we would probably fare much better in interpreting his reply. But if you don't know there's a previous letter, then you might take a lot of the things he says as if he had just decided to sit down and write them a letter and all these ideas are coming out of his own mind. When in fact, um, that is quite not the truth. A lot of what he talks about is in reply to them. Well, you can't do that today. 
Oh, and let me mention here, I believe there was a letter zero Corinthians, which obviously zero makes no sense as the first in a series. But what I'm saying is that first Corinthians was not the first letter because in it, Paul mentions a previous letter he had written. And we don't have that either. So we don't know where it all started, but it looks like uh, Paul wrote a letter. They wrote back in question. Then comes 1 Corinthians. And then after that, 2 Corinthians. So if you can't write to apostles to ask things today, if you can't send an envoy to go ask, to visit them, what are you going to do? How is this different from the experience of the first century Christians? Number 11, no apostles are preaching to the Gentile nations today. And in case you didn't know, uh, Paul was appointed specifically by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that is, to the nations, to the ethnos, uh, to the peoples, not to the Jews. Uh, he did go to the Jews first in his towns as he'd go travel. But uh, when he was done preaching to them, he'd go preach to the Gentiles in those same cities. And that's what he did. Uh, if you want a little proof of this, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, this is Paul writing, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So that was his job, uh, different from those uh, other apostles who stayed as judges over the tribes of Israel. They stayed in the Holy Land mostly. Okay, number 12. Prophets are no longer writing Scripture. We touched on this a little bit when we talked about apostles no longer writing Scripture. Well, neither are there prophets doing that. And just so you know, not every person who wrote a book in the New Testament seems to have been among the apostles. Take Jude, for example, the brother of Jesus. He is not named as an apostle. Was he an apostle? Well, that could be, and we're simply not told in the record. That certainly could be, but it could very well be that he was a prophet with the gift of prophecy by which he wrote the letter. However, he was not uh, serving in the role of an apostle having been appointed by Jesus. So uh, whether he specifically was or not an apostle, he certainly was a prophet. All of the apostles were prophets. And uh, yet there is no longer anybody writing scripture, as far as most Christians will tell you today. And I would agree with that. And so you have to look at that and scratch your head and say, hmm, okay, well, what is it that, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> what time is it? if the writing of scriptures is no longer a thing that God is having somebody do. And we could get off in all kind of very fascinating conversations about that. For example, as a teaser, so much of the writing, in fact, we're going to mention this later in the list, uh, so much of the writing was about the eminence of Jesus' return. Well, if they needed people writing them letters about that then... And if Jesus' return hasn't yet happened, then why don't we need people today writing us letters about the imminence of it? That's a very interesting question. Of course, you know, some people uh, believe that Jesus did return and that the return was not what people today think it was uh, based on them 
misreading the scriptures, misinterpreting. Other people think, well, uh, no, he obviously hasn't returned. Of course, some people think, well, if he had returned, the earth wouldn't be here. It would have been burned up by fire, uh, which I believe was yet another misinterpretation of uh, a passage or two. And so uh, I told you I'm going to open up cans of worms today. <laughs> so this whole idea of eschatology and when's the return of Jesus, what's the nature of that return, uh, that's definitely something we'll get into. Uh, but just know there's a lot of disagreement about that. And yet, uh, scriptures are not being written. If they needed them then, why don't we need them now? Someone will say, oh, well, uh, actually what we have in the scripture is, is the codified teachings of the apostles and the prophets, and that was the goal of the whole thing. Now we're mature, because uh, we have these things, and they didn't in the first century. Uh, but again, I think that's a little poor reasoning today, too, because from the record it would seem that not only did they expect to be much more unified then than we do now, but also they were better at it. They did better keeping this. Uh, for instance, 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul appeals to the Corinthians to be united in thought and opinion, to be uh, in agreement in all matters. Well, today, churches don't even expect that. Even within the same congregation, they expect to have different points of opinion about uh, matters of Scripture. And so the standard is definitely lowered from then until now. And so uh, if you want to say, but yet we're more mature because we have the Bible in print and they didn't, uh, well, I don't think that holds water very well and Obviously, we disagree about that. Okay, let's see. Number 13. Inspired writings are no longer being added to the body of Scripture. And, of course, this raises a lot of questions about what should be in the Bible. But uh, I should have been more specific here that no new inspired writings are being added to the body of Scripture We'll talk, uh, hopefully, before too long about the Bible itself and what's in there, why is it in there. Uh, does God anywhere sign off on the table of contents and say, yes, these books, but not those, <laughs> should be in here? Um, this is a line of thinking that requires some mental powers that a lot of people don't want to exert. Uh, and it's unsettling, and it uh, makes you really have to deal with things that people don't want to deal with. But uh, the Bible is not growing. Have you noticed that? Uh, if you're, I'm 55. When I was a kid, it had 66 books in the Protestant Bible, and today it still has 66. And I had not counted how many are in the Catholic Bible. Uh, and that also raises a very interesting question as to whether anything extra in the Catholic Bible is something that is true, that um, God would want us to know about too. And I'm certainly open to looking at that, where others are not open to looking at that. Oh no, that's heresy. That's terrible. You can't read that stuff. You'll probably go to hell, <laughs> right? So I don't think that's true. I think we can and should read it and should examine what it is. Okay, so uh, number 14. Churches no longer have evangelists or deacons who are gifted like the deacons in Jerusalem were. Now, uh... Should we be calling those seven who were appointed in Acts chapter 6? Should we call them deacons? Oh, well, we could have that argument. But regardless, uh, if you have deacons in your church, 
they are not doing signs, miracles, and wonders like Stephen and Philip were. Are they? So I think this has changed. Now somebody might want to say, oh, but he, so-and-so prayed for me and I got better. So he healed me. Yay. Okay, but is that the same kind of thing you're reading about in Acts? No. It's a much smaller subset of what they seem to have been doing there. Uh, Number 15. Angels are no longer acting as guardians over the congregations. Now, we covered a lot of this in the COVID uh, episodes, whichever three or four of those were. And uh, this was relevant. This is part of the the sticking point why modern-day Christians have such a hard time dealing with government because they think they're being told that they need to obey their human governments no matter what, when actually they were being told, you need to obey the angels who are set over your congregations. And so uh, the question here is, well, uh, were there angels acting as guardians over the congregations? And so I'm going to refer you on this one uh, to Acts, the first three chapters of Acts, where there's discussion about angels and congregations, and there are letters written to seven of the congregations, which is quite a mystery, why those seven and no others. Uh, however, what you'll find is that each of those seven letters is, is addressed to the angel at blank. Uh, at Ephesus, at Smyrna, at Pergamum, and so forth. Uh, That would suggest they did have angels there. Some people say, oh no, that was just elders. So they would use the word angel to apply to elders. Well, uh, two things are wrong with that. One, we don't have an example of that anywhere else in the Bible, so that's problematic. And number two, uh, we do have an example in Revelation chapter 1 of angels being talked about as being angels of the churches. And these are angels are referred to as stars, which is um, apocalyptic language. This is old-time Hebrew practice to refer to angels as stars. And so there's lots of figurative language going on there. This is definitely the talk of... um, you know, divine counsel kind of thing, God having angelic helpers uh, administering the world. And uh, this is not currently happening. I'm going to submit. A lot of people like to believe in angels and all kind of things. We're going to talk about this a bit as we go on. Um, and so I've put in the show notes under uh, item number 15, a link to the Naked Bible podcast for Dr. Michael Heiser, who is a Hebrew expert He's currently in a series about the Revelation where he's examining, uh, it's not a play-by-play, verse-by-verse trek through the Revelation, but what he's doing is examining which passages in the Revelation are hearkening back to Old Testament, so which are alluding to or quoting from or things like that. And so in this uh, episode number 360, he's talking about the letter to Ephesus and the angels there. And he goes in depth about this. Uh, that yes, these, this is a reference to the lesser Elohim, to the uh, divine angelic types, uh, and not to human pastors or uh, preachers in those churches. And so I'll let him make that argument there. I don't agree with everything that uh, Heiser says. He certainly wouldn't agree with everything I say. Uh, so don't take this as my 
uh, oh, whatever Heiser says, I think is right. I'm still not saying that, but I think he's right about this. And he makes a really good argument about it. And uh, I'd made a note here, if I'm wrong about this, if there are now angels acting as guardians over the congregations, then can you answer these questions? Uh, what's the name of the angel that oversees your congregation? When did he last make an appearance? What direction did he give? What correction? What message from God did he bring? And so these are very practical questions, obviously. And if there is an angel over your congregation, don't you think you would know this? If not, then what does that angel do for you? So this also opens up a whole new door to trying to interpret those seven letters. Oh, if this is written to the angel, then is any of the language in this specifically aimed at the angel and not the congregation he's overseeing? And that's a very good question, and we'll talk about that someday. I've got some good uh, recent research into that that's very uh, helpful, but uh, not today. Number 16. Elders can no longer heal people. Uh, not as per James 5.14. Let me just read this passage. Is anyone sick among you? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. That is a promise, my friends. This is an apostle, James, writing this letter. Uh, no, this is not. This is the brother of Jesus, James, writing the letter. And uh, he is telling, so he's a prophet, but he's not an apostle, as far as we are told. Uh, but he's telling them this promise. If you're sick, here's what you do. You call your elders. Well, how did he know they'd have elders? Because they all had elders. Every congregation had elders. That's what you did back then. Today, a lot of Christians are like, oh, what's an elder? <laughs> and they just don't know. Uh, but anyway, um, you were to call the elders and they were to pray over you and you were going to get well. Uh, they would anoint them with oil and pray. And it was going to work. And this is what he said then. Now, people have a hard time getting their hands around this. Why is this not standard practice today? I was in a church once, had a friend who was sick with uh, cystic fibrosis, and uh, you know, which is a, a life-shortening disease. And I thought, well, why isn't God healing our friend? Because everyone loved her and everybody wanted her healed and wanted her to live a long time. Why doesn't God heal her? And I did this long study about healing in the Bible. My, my conclusion at the time, and I was less scholarly than I am now, but my conclusion was, well, it looks to me like God loves healing people. So I went to one of the elders of the church and I said, hey, why don't you elders anoint her with oil and pray for her? And the answer was, well, we've tried that and it doesn't work. Well, stop the presses, folks. I mean, this, this is a big, a big thing. This should have been a major conference, you know, uh, happening that, hey, this verse in the Bible doesn't work for us. Now, do I disagree with him? Oh, no, I don't think it works. In fact, if it did work, why wouldn't uh, every sick Christian everywhere get healed all the time by the elders? This is a promise. There's no, 
there's no stipulation here. There's no uh, loophole that, well, if the person has faith, then they'll get healed. There's none of that. You, go to the, you do this, the elders will do that, God will heal them. Done deal. So this is not working. If you don't believe me, then let's see you obey the passage and let's see the fruit of that obedience. And you can keep score. Uh, this year we took uh, 14 people to the elders for healing and um, not all 14 got well. And of course, some people will say, oh, well, my brother Billy got well. Yeah, okay, that's good. And what percentage did Billy represent of all those sick in the congregation for whom the elders prayed and anointed with oil? Because this should be 100%. That's what they had then, and I submit this is not what we have now. Okay, number 17, the temple is no longer standing in Jerusalem. Now, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, historically, this is a fact. You can go to Jerusalem today and you will not find the temple of God. You will find uh, the Western Wall, which is not the temple of God. That was built by Herod uh, to expand the top of the Temple Mount to make it bigger. Some more stuff could be put up there. Uh, basically, the temple was built on a hill, on a, a rock um, hill, and uh, there was not much room up there. And so Herod wanted to add two, so he had the earth built up around to make a bigger place. And so when you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see the Jews offering their prayers, uh, writing them on slips of paper and slipping them in the cracks in the west wall, but that is not the temple, it never was the temple. That was part of what Herod added in order to uh, increase the Temple Mount area. And so that temple is gone. Well, this is a big deal. Uh, all of Judaism uh, was built around that temple from the day it was built uh, forward. In fact, it, before that, it was built around a temporary temple, the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure that would be carried with the Jews through the desert and so forth. So uh, all of Judaism was centered around this kind of tabernacle or temple worship, and yet, uh, and that was around in the first century, but it's gone now. And it appears it happened in the year 70 AD when the Romans came in. Uh, they had already for a long time had Jerusalem surrounded, and finally they attack the city, and uh, it all gets torn down. Interestingly, if you follow the writings of Josephus, uh, he tells some things about this event, and I've listed a, a, uh, a link in the show notes under number 17, where you can follow and go look at some of the excerpts of Josephus, and you can, of course, read his complete writings. Uh, Josephus was a, uh, a Jewish general who was captured by the Romans at this time and then became for them an historian uh, writing about the history of the Jews uh, so that the Romans could understand better who all they had captured and sort of assimilate the Jewish history into their own uh, story and so forth. And so you can read uh, about details of this from Josephus's own witnessing uh, and perhaps from other reports he had heard. But there were all kind of uh, uh, prodigies occurred, it says, and 
the temple was um, uh, emptied out, he will tell you that um, Titus, the emperor, did not, uh, or he ordered his men not to destroy the temple, and yet it was burned anyway, which raises the question, oh, well, how did that happen? Did God do this? I think that's very likely, actually. And so you can follow that kind of discussion as you get into Josephus. But the temple's not there, and the Bible nowhere, although that's prophesied, and Jesus himself, quite famously in Matthew 24, said that not one stone would be left upon another. Uh, and so this is quite a big prophecy from Jesus, and it happened roughly 40 years after Jesus said that. And so why is there no historical account of that in the Bible? In other words, a Bible writer saying, okay, so uh, here's what happened over at the temple. It got attacked and it was destroyed. There is no such thing as that. And so this may actually serve as a clue to us as to the, to the timing of the New Testament writings because uh, why would you not write about that? if that had happened and you're a Jew because that's a pretty big deal. In fact, even at the Revelation, this is one of the arguing arguments for the early dating of the Revelation, uh, you notice that the temple shown there is still standing. And so the question is, well, if it had already been torn down, why would it be shown standing in the Revelation narrative? So uh, there's a good question. Uh, I know it's very popular. A lot of people believe in the late dating of the Revelation, circa 96 A.D. or 95. Uh, however, it may well be that it was written uh, much earlier, maybe 66 or so, give or take. So there's something to uh, add to your list of things to be looked into. Uh, number 18, the law of Moses is defunct. It is gone. It is over. It's done. There's no more Jewish priesthood. Uh, obviously, there's no more temple like we just mentioned. The daily sacrifices are gone. Uh, the genealogical records are gone too. There's no tracing your lineage back to Levi or uh, anybody else. And I pause here because a lot of Christians don't seem to know this. They still, you'll find them saying, oh, you know, the Jews are God's chosen people. Well, no, God rejected the Jews, tore down their temple, put an end to their religion. It's done. It's over. It's been nearly 2,000 years. It has not been rebuilt yet. Of course, there's always talk about, oh, we're going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Okay. Well, that talk's been going on quite some time. hasn't happened yet. In 2,000 years, uh, nearly, it hasn't happened. And so, uh, and of course, this has... Uh, Tentacles, because if you say that the law of Moses is over, then what about where Jesus said, uh, I tell you, not one jot or tittle will disappear from the law until all is fulfilled. Well, then that would argue, oh, well, whatever all he's talking about being fulfilled must have been fulfilled already. And, of course, that raises what are the particulars of eschatology, and people disagree terribly about these things, uh, largely because they don't, investigate all these trails and nail it down. And so they stay open to rumor and hearsay and memes and, and things like this without really doing their homework too well. 
But I'm going to submit that the law of Moses is over, and uh, my my main argument that I'll make here is simply that well, you got no priesthood, no temple, no sacrifices, and no genealogical records. So. If you want to have Judaism without all that, well, good luck with that. I'm not sure how you're going to do that. In fact, modern-day Judaism doesn't even try to do these things, and yet they still claim to be God's people. I don't get that. You rejected the Messiah. God rejected you. Uh, end of story. So that's where I think that is. Uh, number 19, those who Jesus said would see him return are no longer in Judea. Matthew 16, verse 28. This is Jesus talking. Truly I tell you, some of you, or some who are standing here, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So he's talking to living people and saying uh, that they would see him return. But I'm going to submit that those people are not still there. If they are, then where are they? Uh, Mark 9 Verse 1, uh, this is a separate account of Jesus saying the same thing. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So I'm going to tell you that those people are not still there. And so that's got implications, right? There are consequences to this fact. There's some trickle-down of other facts that need to happen if this is indeed true. Now, if it's not true, if they are still there, could you please uh, produce those people for me? I'd love to talk to them. Number 20, people are no longer teleporting. I'm talking about Philip here in Acts chapter 8. Uh, listen to this narrative. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the, eun the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Uh, Philip had just been explaining to him the gospel. And, uh, and he, con he, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So here's Philip in one place, and then boom, he's gone. He finds himself in another place, and he goes on about his job there. Well, I'm going to submit that this is no longer happening. Uh, I have never been teleported. I have never heard of anybody being teleported. I don't even hear about this happening in Africa, which is funny because, uh, you know, the, if you hear about people being raised from the dead in the churches, it's almost always in Africa where you hear about this happening. So I submit this has changed from then until now, and this is not the kind of thing that we hear about happening now. Uh, number 21, there was no longer a wave of prophecy about the imminence of Jesus's return. And we mentioned this briefly before. Uh, we can look at the later epistles. We can look at the Revelation and see all this talk about uh, it's soon, it's coming, it's quickly, and uh, things that must uh, soon happen. This kind of language that's being written about. Uh, and the apostles were saying this kind of stuff, we would presume, in their live teachings of people in person. And yet we don't have that 
being said now. So for whatever reasons, it was apparently important in the first century to have people saying that, but it must not be important now for whatever reasons else we can reason that God would have people saying that today. Uh, <laughs> who are apostles and prophets. Uh, now, many today believe their own preachers at their churches are prophets, and some think they're apostles, perhaps. Um, I'm going to submit that they're not, so we may disagree about this one. Uh, but where are the warnings of imminence? They are gone. They're not happening in the same way they happened then. Even if you think that lesser officers are now doing this than we're doing it at first. So there's something else. Uh, now, you, a lot of you may ignore this one because you don't like it, uh, or you think your own pastor is a prophet or something. Uh, but uh, again, to an earlier point, uh, whatever your pastor is saying on Sunday morning is not getting added to the Bible, now is it? So uh, there's a difference. This is sort of part of a bigger picture. Number 22, uh, demon possessions, most might say, do not seem to be happening with the frequency suggested by the New Testament record. I did not go through and make a list of all that's in there, but I bet your impression is like mine that, boy, that's talked about a lot. And yet, I don't, even though there are people today who believe demon possessions are still happening, uh, I don't know among them people who think it is as common as what we read about in the Bible today. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't people who say that. I'm just saying I don't know about them. Uh, as I have looked at people who talk about demon possessions, I find a lot of their stories to be uh, problematic, and they don't seem to stand up well to, uh, to questioning. Uh, so, again, I know this will be very controversial, Yet to a lot of people, it's very commonsensical. Well, of course, Jack, yeah, there aren't demon possessions today like we read about in the Bible. So um, if you disagree with me, you want to send me your favorite stories, just please don't let them be about Africa. Why isn't this happening in somebody's congregation here? So uh, anyway, I'm open to examining this, but I do not find very good evidence once this discussion starts uh, I would be very surprised to find a very well-evidenced account of this. Uh, number 23, uh, angel appearances, most might say, do not seem to be happening with the frequency suggested by the New Testament record. Now, I did make a list of this just to uh, give you an idea. So, and there's several items, I don't know, probably 20 or more items on this list. Uh, angels appeared to Joseph and to Mary regarding the birth of Jesus, and then after the birth, they're moving to uh, Egypt, and then uh, back from Egypt to the Holy Land, and so forth. Uh, angels appeared to Zechariah regarding the birth of John the Baptist. Angels appeared to the shepherds. And get this, um, uh, Luke 2, verse 12, uh, this is, of course, at the birth of Jesus. An angel says to them, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I hear uh, Christians from time to time talk about angels saying, Oh, 
I think a guy I met in an alley was an angel. I do not ever hear Christians talking about seeing a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying this, that, or the other thing. So uh, you got to look at this Luke 2 and say, hmm, is that still happening today? How angels appeared to Jesus after his temptation. He also referred to angels several times like, don't you think I can call and immediately have, uh, I forget his, his exact wording, but a great many angels here at my disposal. Uh, an angel rolled the stone away and addressed the women at Jesus' tomb. An angel busted Peter out of prison, uh, not only in Acts 5, but also in Acts 12. An angel tells the evangelist Philip where to go next. That's in Acts 8. An angel is involved in the Peter and Cornelius story in Acts 10. An angel strikes uh, Herod dead in Acts 12. Not after having him eaten by worms. That was the method of death, apparently. Quite an excruciating thing. Uh, an angel informs Paul about an imminent shipwreck in Acts 27. Uh, bad angels were trying to separate people from God. And this is, um, this is conjecture. Uh, here's Acts 8.38. This is Paul writing. For I am sure that neither... I said Acts. I'm sorry. This is Romans. And while we're talking here, I'll make that change in my notes. Romans 8.38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers... Get that, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to submit to you that there were angels trying to separate people from God. Obviously, these would not be the holy angels. These would be the rebel angels, those in Satan's lot. Uh, angels were still harassing women in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians 11.10. 10. I think we've discussed this before. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, comma, because of the angels. And so, boy, this seems uh, really weird to be mentioning this just in passing. But this all goes back to Genesis 6, when the sons of God, the Bene Elohim in Hebrew, when they saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, they married any of them they chose. Uh, contrary to what someone like to believe, this is the story of divine beings marrying human women and having children by them. Uh, Book of Enoch, or One Enoch, talks about this in greater detail even, and there you'll find it in One Enoch chapter 6 and following. A lot of talk about these angels and what they did. It's very explicit uh, language. There's no hinting about at it. When you read about it in Genesis, it seems to have been written to a crowd that already knew the story, and so the details aren't filled in. And, uh, you know, I remember talking to one friend, an author, who said, well, I just I have a hard time getting excited about the idea of uh, angels intermarrying with human women. I'm like, well, that's what the text says. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you're uh, excited about it or not, but you need to acknowledge that that's what they believed. In fact, you know, Michael Heiser mentions this uh, often. If you ask uh, the Christians today what would explain the state of the world, you know, the, the, the bad state of things, they will tell you, oh, well, Genesis 3, the fall, dun, dun, dun. And, uh, you know, which the words the fall are not even in the Bible. But this is, you know, a, a common interpretation of things. But Heiser points out, 
And I think rightly that if you were to ask a well-educated Jew, well-read in Scripture, uh, back in the first century or prior, if you were to ask them to what they attributed the bad state of the world, they wouldn't have pointed to just the Genesis 3 event with uh, eating the forbidden fruit. They would also point uh, to the, um, the Genesis 6 event, the intermarrying of angels with human women, and to the uh, Tower of Babel, uh, where the, um, the world is given over to angelic uh, control, where God uh, gave the, the nations away for the angels to lead them and took Israel for his own. And that, of course, if you haven't heard it already, that's what Heiser refers to as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which is based roughly on 30, uh, 32 verse 7 and 8, something like that. There's a brief uh, listing in there. So if you want something else to go dig into, uh, there you go. So going on about these uh, angel appearances in the New Testament, uh, Satan himself, uh, he was disguising himself as one of the holy angels of God. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Uh, notice it tells you what kind of angel, an angel of the light, not of the darkness. It's one of the good guys, not one of the bad guys. So he, though he is an angel of uh, the darkness, uh, was acting as if he was one of the good guys. Uh, going on in Galatians, you'll see the angels were preaching false versions of the gospel. And again, some people might think this is speculation, but here's the text, Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And so some people might say, well, Jack, look, this is just him giving a hypothetical that you stick to your guns on the gospel as it was preached to you, even if, oh, hmm, uh, an angel should tell you differently. Yeah, okay. But I think that there were angels uh, who were uh, doing this very thing. In fact, I didn't put it on my list, but I believe the talk in Jude, in his very short uh, one-chapter letter, is about interlopers coming into their uh, congregational meetings, into their love feasts, and uh, stirring up all kinds of trouble there. And I believe those were angels doing that. So that's not on my list here, but that's in Jude. And you'll find all kind of uh, angel talk down there. I believe we have discussed this before. What I need is a running list of episodes and uh, their subject matter on my wall so that I can quickly refer to what we've talked about. Uh, so going on, uh, they were preaching false uh, versions of the gospel. Uh, people were worshiping angels. Colossians 2, verse 8. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So this was a problem. People were worshiping angels. Uh, do you know people who do that today? Think about that. An angel made known Jesus' revelation to John. Uh, revelation 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So there you go. There's an angel who was conveying uh, what would turn into this book. Uh, let's see. Angels were overseeing at least some of the Christian congregations. 
We've talked about this before in this very episode, but I'll read it to you again. Acts 1, I'm sorry, not Acts 1, this is Revelation 1, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here he is flat out telling us you've got uh, angels of the churches, of meaning, you know, that belong to, belong with, that go together with, that are related to them somehow, something like that. And so uh, we've already talked about that a bit. I believe that that was happening then and is not happening now. And then, um, so after all this, I made a note of one angel passage that people love to cling to today. It's Hebrews 13 and verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This one is very popular, and uh, a lot of people love to sort of fancy their uh, imaginations this way. Oh, I wonder if that guy I met at the bake sale was an angel, or some some person said a profound thing to me uh, the other day. I'd never seen them before, don't know who they are. I wonder if they were an angel. Uh, well... <laughs> If you're doing that, then what you're doing is you are setting aside the fact that all these other angel things are not happening today, as far as you know, but you're clinging to the hope that, well, maybe they are, and I just don't know about it. And I must admit, logically speaking, and being uh, rational and responsible, Sure, things could be happening that Jack doesn't know about. In fact, you can count on that because Jack doesn't know about everything. Yet, uh, I've been paying attention for a long time, and I don't see these things as being normal occurrences. Uh, do they happen at all? I tend to think they don't, and people are mistaken when they believe that they do. Uh, however, there's a big difference between uh, well, they might happen some, uh, sometimes, once in a while, and how they seem to have happened in the first century. And so this is a matter of impressions, right? You read the New Testament, you tell me how often do you think these things were happening? These demon possessions, the angelic visits, the gifts, the healings, and so forth. And then compare that today. Do you honestly think Oh, yeah, what I see at church, it's the same as what I read in the Bible, the same frequency. I don't think so. I, don't, I think that would be an irresponsible interpretation of what we see. And so I throw all this out today for you to wrestle with or not. What I've done here is to give you several trails of investigation which you may abandon. And you may say, oh, I'm not going to look into that. <laughs> and then how you, you know, quote, justify, end quote, to yourself, that's all up to you. Oh, well, that's clearly ridiculous. Or, well, Jack is fat. He can't be right about this. Or um, that's your ad hominem argumentation right there. Uh, or if this were true, God would have told me or my preacher would have told me or I would have known it already. If I had been wrong about this, I would have known that already. You know, 
any manner of mental gymnastics you want to do to not look into these things. And yet, wouldn't you tell me that most of what I've said today is indeed true, that these things do seem to be obsolete? They are not happening anymore, or at least not nearly at the frequency that uh, the New Testament gives us this idea of. And yes, I ended with a preposition, didn't I? So the question is, are we going to think through our religion or just keep on repeating the hearsay? So let me talk a bit. Uh, I think this will all be in one episode. I didn't mark my beginning time, but it feels short. Uh, so let's talk a bit about abandoned trails. Having a, a conversation with one uh, listener about this very thing, and it opens up all kinds of uh, topics and issues and questions. One, obviously, is that we need to be better educated. Well, yes, we do. And if we were better at... Uh, you know, logic and probability and, and um, statistics and investigatory things, better at language, better at knowing history, better at knowing uh, hermeneutics and things like this. Would we do better? Oh, you bet we would. But mostly the, the first thing is, do we care to get things right? Because you have to start to care. Otherwise, why would you invest any uh, effort at all into looking into these things? So once you start to care, I would suggest you need to start building a track record. Uh, first things first. Go look up something, anything, whatever Bible question has come to mind, and track it down until you've got a pretty good answer. And then write that answer down and keep it in provisional status because you might someday come up with some more information that would cause you to revise your answer now that, you have that, now that you're better informed than you were before. And so that's how you do it. You go track a thing down and find out. And if the answer is, I can't really find information on this, we don't know. Well, there you go. Now you know that you don't know. And that is a very valuable thing too. But a lot of people will never do that. And they'll say, oh, y'all, we don't really know about this. Well, maybe you could know. Maybe the information is there and could be... Uh, mind out of the scriptures and be very useful to you, but you just don't know because you don't go look, which reminds me of that line, you have not because you ask not. You know, the answer's there for you. You're not going to go ask the Bible and find out. Well, shame on you for not having the answer. Now, let me be careful with that shame on you business because we don't have time to go look up every possible Bible question. We certainly don't. But here's the thing that happens. When you start doing this, when you say, look, I don't know how much time I've got, but I'm going to try my best this month to track down this answer. Uh, whether you get all the way or not, you certainly have learned a lot of things along the way, and you gain a new type of confidence that comes not from your own self-assurance, but that comes through being familiar with the facts. And you learn how to investigate things, and you be very clumsy up front, but you'll get better and better at it, faster, more efficient, uh, more reliable in the conclusions you draw. You will realize uh, problems with some of your mental work and realize you need to correct that and quit making that mistake again. And this is how you build a scholar. 
This is how you build an honest, rational, and responsible Bible student who learns how to learn things and how to unlearn things along the way. And if you don't develop this kind of track record, you'll be constantly blown back and forth by the winds of popular teachings and memes and hearsay. Well, you know, I, I really thought this might be true, but then my preacher said he didn't believe it. So I just uh, sort of abandoned that trail and didn't look any further into it. And I've already told you stories about preachers pulling this kind of stuff where I'd ask some question and they say, well, you know, that's uh, very interesting, but, you know, that's not a core doctrine. So we're just going to ignore that question as if it had never been asked and, and go on with our class. Well... Uh, you know, we've talked about that uh, a good bit. There certainly will be more of that talk to come because I think this is uh, a very foolish thing that we do. And it's part of our church culture to do this. We feel like we're being all smart and spiritual and wise to do it. Um, and, and so we abandon so many things. People even abandon acts of righteousness whether they're wanting to tell or expose the truth about something that is evil, and they find reasons to abandon that, to not do it. Somebody told me this week that I would have more students in my school if only I did not post on Facebook about my uh, political beliefs. And uh, she shared how she had uh, written something on Facebook about Lady Gaga being a vile person and how a coworker of hers had uh, said, uh, had taken issue with that. Oh, I love Lady Gaga. And, and she was very offended at the post. And so uh, the one sharing with me said she removed her post and she realized her language was something like, oh, I realized it was hurting my witness to Christ uh, to post that. So I took it down. And I just scratched my head at that. I thought, uh, telling the truth is my witness to Christ. I don't care if somebody finds it offensive. It's true. You know, honesty, righteousness. These are the things I want to write about. I don't hesitate to write about the sins of the government uh, because they are sins. In fact, I frequently come back to Paul, where I think he says to the Ephesians, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Well, exposing, that's an active verb. This is not, you know, sit around and hope that they become exposed. No, you go expose them. Tell people about it. Speak up about it. And I think a lot of Christians even get themselves in that situation where they realize some wrong is being done. But if I talk up about it, then I become a controversial person. I become a lightning rod. Well, hello, didn't Jesus say that uh, to his uh, disciples that they had to take up their cross and follow him daily? And didn't he say, uh, if they hated me, they will hate you also? Isn't that what he told the apostles? Why should we be exempt from that? If they hated Jesus and the apostles, well, if we try to be righteous, won't they hate us too? Well, of course. And so a lot of people find cute little spiritual reasons, and I put, I guess, spiritual in air quotes, to avoid these things. They're saying, well, that, that's hurting my witness for the gospel. <laughs> no. Uh, 
In fact, what's hurting the gospel is you not exposing the, uh, the, the, the deeds of darkness. You see, people are watching. They know that you never speak up about abortion or that you never speak up about child trafficking or uh, any of these other things because you're afraid of getting in a conflict. And not all of the abandoned trails are because of that kind of fear. Some are simply about the cognitive mismanagement uh, or uh, certainly about cognitive laziness. Well, I just don't, you know, that would take some time to look into that, Jack. And, and after all, I do have to make uh, cookies for the Bible group. So, you know, there's my, my, uh, my get-out-of-jail-free card, right? There's my trump to this whole thing. So I think we do this to ourselves a great deal. What I've done today is to give you a lot of things to think about or not, like I said, things to not think about, things to decide, no, I'm not, I'm going to shut down. I will not continue in thinking through this thing and, and reassessing how the Bible puzzle all fits together. Nope, I will just keep assuming it's more or less the same time now as it is or as it was back then in the first century. Uh, what I'd like to do uh, soon is to talk some more about this challenge uh, from the friend about Facebook posts and about the question of whether Jesus, uh, uh, did he draw back from saying controversial things because he was afraid uh, of hurting the gospel by doing that. I'd like to look into that. But I also want to continue with this conversation with sort of a, um, a second half of it uh, the question today being, uh, what all has changed? But the next question being, what all was supposed to change from then until now? What was prophesied, actually said in advance, this is going to change? Uh, and so that, too, will be a very interesting conversation. I hope this is firing off lots of neurons in your mind. Uh, I also kind of hope that it's overwhelming because it should be. Uh, this is not to punish you or to lash out or anything, but simply this is a lot of stuff uh, to put all under one uh, episode, to think about all at one time, and it ought to be overwhelming. And uh, I hope that's okay with you where you can just say, wow, that's really overwhelming, that's a bunch of stuff, rather than you know, you crash and burn and get depressed and, and start thinking I'm a terrible person. So... Uh, and I mean not that Jack's a terrible person, but that you are because you feel overwhelmed. So uh, I would take it with a grain of salt and just uh, say, wow, okay, that's a lot to think about, and maybe I need to uh, take some time and start uh, you know, putting on that thinking cap more often than just letting these things uh, come in one ear and out the other, as they say. I think this happens a lot, and I think this has a lot to do with the state of the churches today because people just are not really considering the Scriptures. They're not weighing these things out and saying, well, look, is this happening today? I don't see where this is. And if, if it's not, then what does that mean? What are the consequences of that? What are the implications of that? How does that trickle out? Uh, for example, if... The elders cannot heal anybody anymore by anointing them with oil and praying. If that's true, does that mean all healing is off the table, that that was only a temporary thing? 
or is is something else the answer? You know, which is it? And these are things that need to be uh, sought out, and yet so very few people do this. I've been frustrated for years. Why is it so hard to get Christians to talk about the particulars of Christianity? And that is a hard-hitting question, uh, or at least I would hope it would be, and yet I know so many who stay silent. One post after another, I will ask questions, and I get no answers from so many because they either don't know or they're scared to get into it, or they know they don't know, uh, and they don't want to admit that, or whatever. Uh, They're busy making cookies, uh, but they're not busy looking into the scriptures. And I submit there's a great deal of that yet to be done that we will never finish in our lifetime and we ought to stay busy about it the whole time. And that's what makes life, I think, an enriched thing for the mature believer who says, okay, God provided this material. I would like to learn the material. And so um, I, I trust you can sense my frustration with people. I've had Uh, Many years now, as I've been considering these things, uh, the subject matter of today, and have not been able to find hardly anybody to discuss it with. Uh, So I think this bodes very badly for the churches, uh, for the state of mind and the the mental management that's going on there where we just don't want to deal with these things. So I think I'm repeating myself a bit too much. I must be done (laughs) with this podcast episode. And uh, we'll pick it up next time, hopefully very soon. Uh, So much yet to talk about. Thanks for joining in.